Today we'll be reading from Isaiah 49, verses 13 through 16. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. God's Amazing Promises is our current teaching series, and we're going to talk about God's Amazing Promises as it relates to for when you feel forsaken. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 49, and we're looking at those first 16 verses. We only read uh, from 13 to 16. But our focus will be on verses 14 to 16. You can also grab your sermon notes out, follow along. Why God made moms. Answers given by elementary school age children to the following questions. I love these. These are always great. So why did God make mothers? Here's some answers. Mostly to clean the house. How about this one? To help us out of there when we were getting born. <laughs> That's interesting. And uh, what ingredients are mothers made of? God makes mothers out of clouds and angel hair and everything nice in the world and one dab of mean. <laughs> Why did God give you your mother and not some other mom? God knew she likes me a lot more than other people's moms like me. What kind of little girl was your mom? I don't know because I wasn't there, but my guess was that she was pretty bossy. Why did your mom marry your dad? My grandma says that mom didn't have her thinking cap on. What's the difference between moms and dads? Moms work at work and work at home. Dads just go to work at work. What does your mom do in her spare time? Mothers don't do spare time. What would it take to make your mom perfect? That's a good one. On the inside, she's already perfect, but outside, I think some kind of plastic surgery. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. If you could change one thing about your mom, what would it be? She has this weird thing about me keeping my room clean. I'd get rid of that. Here's the last one. I would like for her to get rid of those invisible eyes on her back. There you go. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Biological moms, spiritual moms, adopted moms. Thank you for the impact that you have on our lives. This is an interesting text. I think it's truly a Mother's Day text because God is using as a metaphor a nursing mom to show to us that when we feel forsaken and forgotten, no, he's still there loving us, taking care of us, providing for us as, as moms do. 
Look at your sermon notes here. Every follower of Christ will sooner or later experience circumstances that will make you feel forsaken and forgotten by God. Everyone will face that. Everyone will have to deal with that. How you respond to these feelings can either make you or break you. So it's important to learn how to respond. But here's what's most important. Most importantly, knowing and experiencing God's response to our despondency and despair is the only answer that really matters. And that's what we have in this text. This is God's response to our despondency and despair. Let me give you a little background of the text. Anytime you read a text, you need to understand the context in which it's written. So Isaiah prophesies of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, who will bring salvation to the world. The New Testament writers identify this servant of the Lord as Jesus. In Isaiah 49, chapter 49, verses 1 through 13, is a sweeping, comprehensive, panoramic statement of the salvation God is going to bring into the world through the servant, through Jesus. So there is a salvation coming soon for the Jews exiled in Babylon. That's verses 5 and 8. That's who he's speaking to. That's his original audience. And then eventually the coming of Christ bringing salvation to all people, verses 6 and 12. And then ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth where all sin and suffering is over. And that's verse 13. Now, what's interesting about this text is in verse, verse 14, there's this skeptical response. I mean, this is a great theological discourse. Isaiah is, is proclaiming a prophecy. And then suddenly in verse 14, he's interrupted. It's like, hey, hey uh, time out, wait a minute. Um, it doesn't feel like God loves and cares for me. I mean, it's kind of shocking, kind of breaks her on. So he's got this glowing prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, and he talks specifically about the group of people there, but also into the future, and, it, and, and it's like you're in a class and a, someone raises their hand and says, hey, wait a minute, I don't, I don't get it, I don't feel it, man, I'm not, I'm not there. I love this, because then we're going to see God's response to that feeling of, of forsakenness and forgottenness, and in fact, in our notes here, you can see So verse 14, you've got the painful complaint. Verse 15 is God's compassionate answer. And then in verse 16, God's comforting cure. But before we check each of those out, let's let's bow our heads just for a moment. Let's pray. Let's ask God for help to understand this and apply this to our lives. Father God, we pray that your compassionate answer and comforting cure in our times of feeling forsaken and forgotten. Lord, I can't help but think that there are those that are here this weekend that are feeling that way. And I know that all of us, sooner or later, will feel that way. So God, we, we pray that your compassionate answer and comforting cure in, in our times of feeling forsaken and forgotten would not just be clear to our minds, but real to our hearts, filling us with the joy of your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. So let's take that first part, a painful complaint. Look at verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. The word forsaken here in the Hebrew means abandoned, neglected, or left behind. The word forgotten in the Hebrew means ignored, to cease, to care. So I feel abandoned, neglected, but I don't even think you even remember me. I don't even think you even notice me. That's what he's feeling here. So here's your first fill in the blank on your notes. A faith unchallenged by doubt is a naive faith. Because that's what's happening here. 
So a faith unchallenged by doubt is a naive faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, uh, James starts his whole letter with these words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the trying of your faith, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance have its perfect work in you so that you might be complete and perfect, not lacking anywhere. So he starts the whole book off just saying, hey, you know what? When you go through hard times, that's a testing of your faith, and it's going to develop something in you that otherwise you'll never be able to experience. That's why a faith unchallenged by doubt is a naive faith. I like what Gary Parker says in his uh, book, The Gift of Doubt. Listen to what he says. If faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its own power? In my own pilgrimage, if I have to choose between a faith that has stared doubt in the eye and made it blink, or a naive faith that has never known the firing line of faith, I will choose the former every time. Take a look at your next fill in the blank on your notes. A naive faith will be defenseless against tragedy and smart skeptics. Jude chapter 3 says, contend for the faith. What does that mean to contend for the faith? This is what it means. It means that, that you need to not only know what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. You need to have a solid foundation under the what. So if I were to ask you, what do you believe? That's a good thing, but you'll, you also need to know why you believe. Neglect the why and you'll drift from the what. That's important. Here's the next one. You can have strong faith and still have doubts. You can have strong faith and still have doubts. A lot of examples in the Bible. Let me give you one. Uh, John the Baptist. In fact, you know, on your notes, you need to change. It's not John 3.16, but it's, it's Luke 3.16. John the Baptist, remember, he's the guy that looked to Jesus and said, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. He understood the magnitude of this man, Christ Jesus. This is God in flesh and blood. And so he acknowledges Jesus as that. John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, John the Baptist said to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away of the sin of the world. Now, if you're familiar with the story of John the Baptist, he gets thrown in prison. And it's not looking good for him. In fact, we know that he eventually has his head cut off. He's martyred. So while he's in prison, he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. Remember what he had his disciples ask Jesus? He said, Jesus... Uh, are you the one? <laughs> I mean, after he's pointed him out, you're the one, and now he's in prison, and it doesn't look good, and he's asking Jesus, are, are, are you, I just want to make sure here, are you the one? He's struggling with some doubt. And what's fascinating about that story is that Jesus, of course, sends back messengers and says, yes, of course I am. And then, uh, and then Jesus says in Luke chapter 7 about John the Baptist, none is greater than John the Baptist. So you can have strong faith and still have doubts. You see, you can see John the Baptist wrestling with those doubts in his life. Here's the next one. Doubt is somewhere between faith and unbelief. So the opposite of faith is not doubt but, but unbelief. Unbelief is a willful refusal to, to believe. John chapter 3, verse 19, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. So that would be unbelief. Like, yeah, I see the facts, I see the evidence, I see all of that that Jesus accomplished, but I'm not buying it, I'm not believing it. That would be, that would be unbelief. And so unbelief is, is willful refusal to believe. Doubt is indecision between belief and unbelief. 
It's just what, you, what you're wanting to put your faith in is really important to you, but you have these doubts you're trying to work through. Now, unbelief doesn't mean you don't believe. It means that you have an alternate set of beliefs. By the way, everybody on this planet is betting their life on some belief system. Everyone has a belief system. That's how we function. You can't live life without some sort of belief system. Even atheists are, are counting on something. They're betting their life on something. So everyone on this planet is betting their life on something. Unbelief doesn't mean, unbelief in Christ does not mean that you don't believe. It means that you have an alternate set of beliefs. Now here's what I find fascinating is when people push back on Christianity, it is inconsistent to require more justification for Christianity than you do for your own alternate set of beliefs. In fact, what I have found is that if you'll, if you'll put your beliefs, your Christian beliefs on the scale of probability, I mean, it will tilt the scale favorably because Christianity is historical, it's evidential, it's factual. It will tilt the scale towards probability beyond a reasonable doubt because the veracity and the validity of this man, Christ Jesus, oh my goodness, don't check your brains at the door, do the research. And I will put Christianity against, up against any other belief system on this planet. And, and so when you're doubting, what you need to do is dive deeper into the truth of who Christ is and what the Bible teaches about him. And so, like unbelief, doubt is also based on an alternate set of beliefs. So you're wrestling with an alternate set of beliefs. So you must doubt your doubts. You must question your doubts. Let me, let me give you a couple examples of that. This is found in the book of Psalms. Uh, I'll just give you one example. Psalm 77, 7 through 9. Listen to what the psalmist says here. See if, you, if he's not questioning his doubts. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Do you hear him questioning his doubts? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? I mean, that's how I'm feeling. I feel like his, his, his steadfast love has, has ceased. Well, is that true? Is, that can't be true. So he's wrestling with this. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has, has he in anger shut up his compassion? So he's doubting his doubts. He's working through it as he's praying to God, as he's interacting with God. So, so here's what you need to understand. Faith is not the absence of questions, doubts, and fears. Here's your next fill in the blank. Faith is bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. So, so that's... That is faith, bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. In fact, the community of faith, believers, should be the safest environment to do that. I have people come up to me, and I've, I've had people say, I'm, I, you know, you talk about the presence of God and how much joy that brings to you. I'm not getting it. I'm not feeling it. I haven't experienced that. Maybe from time to time, but nothing like how you're talking about it. And I'm cool with that. I'm glad that you're, you're honest enough to be able to admit that. And, and I can help you to process that. But that's the safest place to be able to share those doubts should be the community of believers so that we can overcome the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, and the disillusionment of suffering, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let me ask you this question. What book of the Bible demonstrates this truth, that faith is bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God? What book in, of the Bible demonstrates this truth? Anybody? Psalms, 150 chapters, oh my goodness, raw emotion. Yes, I'll give you a couple of examples here. Psalm 10, 1. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? 
Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This is in the Bible. I love it. Psalm 13, 1 through 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You hear the anguish? Does that person sound like they feel forsaken and forgotten? Absolutely. It's in the book of Psalms. So struggling with God over the issues of life doesn't show a lack of faith. Listen to me, that is faith. That is faith. So that's the painful complaint. Now listen to God's compassionate answer. It's absolutely breathtaking. It's beautiful. And this is how God deals with a a despondent and despairing person. Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. I mean, just let those words just soak in just for a moment. In fact, when he says, even these may forget, actually the the word may is not in the original text in the Hebrew. It's actually saying they will forget. Even the best moms are certainly not perfect, but eventually every mom will, will die. Every mom will leave this planet. And those are, those are tender words. Let's, let's answer this question here. Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? Eddie, push me just a tad if you would, please. Here's the first reason, unresolved past hurts. So mom plays a big role in our life, and maybe you were raised in a home that maybe mom was maybe absent or she wasn't there, she wasn't there to support you. That can, that can play a factor in your life. Also, kind of the father wound can play a, a, a part in your life. And if you don't resolve those issues, you'll tend to relate to God consistent with how you related to your parents. And so, so you're going to take hits in life and the people in your life and the, and the crisis in your life, and if you don't work through those wounds... Over time, you'll become bitter. I'll let you study that on your own. Maybe we'll save that for a later date to kind of work through that. But Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 talks about not giving the devil a foothold and has to do with hurts in your life. And the way that we do that is we become bitter and our hearts become hardened over time. Therefore, that can create all sorts of doubts. Here's another reason why do we doubt unrealistic expectations. Now, this is what I find interesting with, uh, I gave you a number of examples of that. You can read these on your own as you're working through the growing notes. But the one example of uh, John the Baptist in Luke 7, he sends message to Jesus. He's in prison, sends message to Jesus, says, are you the one? Now, you'll notice that John the Baptist doesn't say, if you're the one, you'll get me out of this mess. So it's not predicated upon... Jesus fixing his problem. He just wanted to know, are you the one? If you're the one, then I'm okay with whatever happens in my life. He doesn't have unrealistic expectations. He realizes that good, bad, and ugly can all happen to us, even though we might be fully devoted to, to follow Christ. We see that in, throughout the scriptures. And so I'm, I'm okay with whatever plan you have for my life. If you're the one, I'm I'm Okay. I'm okay with whatever happens. In fact, unwillingness to give up control. Unwillingness to give up control. So unresolved past hurts, unrealistic expectations, and then uh, unwillingness to give up control of our lives can create a lot of doubt in our lives. 
Hebrews chapter 11 is a faith chapter, and I don't, know if, I don't know if you've ever read to the end of that chapter, but it starts off with just glorious success, and then the, it kind of turns a corner, and the rest of the chapter talks about horrible suffering, and it's all by faith, and, and all of us will have a, a level of success in our faith and suffering in our faith, and we've got to be okay with either one. We can't have unrealistic expectation and unwillingness to give up control uh, of our lives. There's, a, there's an interesting story there in the last chapter of the Gospel of John. Remember when Peter was walking along the beach with the resurrected Christ Jesus and kind of restoring his relationship with Christ after he had denied Christ three times. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And then he gets to the end of that and he tells Peter... Uh, in fact, let me read it to you. It's, it's quite fascinating. He tells Peter, um, truly, truly, I say to you, this is chapter 21 of John, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. That doesn't sound too good, does it? This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Who's that? Anybody? That's John, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, but what about this man? <laughs> And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Are you able to let God call the shots for your life? Even if it's maybe certainly different from someone else's life? That's what Peter's up against. He say, what about John? Never mind John. Let's focus on you, Peter. I'm, I'm the one that's writing the script for your life. Can you trust me to do that for you? So unresolved past hurts, unrealistic expectations, and unwillingness to give up control. Now, here's your next fill in the blank on your notes. It's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters most. So if you're going to navigate all of this and work through the doubt, it's not the size of your faith, it's the object of your faith that matters most. You've heard this illustration before, let me share it with you again. Imagine you're hiking and lose your footing and begin to fall off of a very high cliff. And there is a branch sticking out of the side of the cliff that is your only hope and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If you are intellectually certain that the branch can hold you, but you don't reach out and grab it, you will fall to your death. All the knowledge you have about God is not going to do you a bit of good unless you reach out and get a hold of him and have a relationship with him. That's kind of the idea here. But if your mind is filled with questions, doubts, and fears that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. You will be saved. It's not the size, but the object of your faith that matters most. So here it is. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. It's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith that matters most. Here's your next one. The more you get to know the object of your faith, the more your faith will grow. We talked about that this last weekend. Um, Psalm 
Chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. It says, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name will do what? Will trust in him. No, the word know there is more than information about God, it's intimacy with God. Those who know his name, name represents his character. The more you get to know his character, the more you're going to trust in him. If you're struggling and trusting in God, you need to get to know him. The more you know his name, you will trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. So the more you get to know the object of your faith, the more your faith will grow. Now, here's what I love about this text here in verse 15. God doesn't lecture us, but loves us by tenderly giving himself to us. That's what we see in this text. So we're struggling with feeling forsaken and forgotten. And what does God do? He doesn't lecture us. He gives us his love by tenderly giving himself to us. Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb even these may forget yet i will not forget you i love what johnny erickson tata says in her book when god weeps it's in a in the chapter in this book titled the best answer we have listen to what she says god like a father doesn't just give advice he gives himself. He becomes the husband to the grieving widow, Isaiah 54, 5. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman, Isaiah 54, 1. He becomes the father of the orphan, Psalm 10, 14. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person, Isaiah 62, 5. He is the healer to the sick, Exodus 15, 26. He is the wonderful counselor to the confused and depressed, Isaiah 9, 6. This is what you do when someone you love is in anguish. You respond to the plea of their heart by giving them your heart. If you are the one at the center of the universe holding it together if everything moves breathes and has its being in you you can do no more than give yourself Acts 17 28 it's the only answer that ultimately matters think about this he gives himself to us we have his presence we have God I love that now Here's what God is wanting to do in this response. God is wanting to drive the truth in our head of who he is down into our heart until it begins to change us. This is where it begins to bring the change. Now, Christianity is both head sound and heart satisfying. It's both left brain, right brain. So it's, it's historical, evidential, factual. It'll tilt the scale of probability beyond a reasonable doubt. Got to, got to do the research, got to have, you got to know who God is based on what the Bible says, but it's got to be more than just knowing who he is. You have to have a relationship with him. That's more of that right brain side. So it's, it's head sound and heart satisfying. Thinking has to do with our cognition. Feeling has to do with our emotion. Willing has to do with our volition. And this is what's fascinating about God here. God doesn't go directly to the volition. Notice his response is, hey, suck it up. You just heard these powerful prophecies I gave you. I'm here for you. I'm going to take care of you. You just need to deal with it. Come on. So he doesn't work on their volition, nor does he go directly to their emotions by kind of nurturing a little self-pity. Oh, poor baby. We're so sorry. No, actually, he goes after the thinking, our thinking, but drives it into the emotions with this metaphor. See, here's the key to 
to driving truths down into your heart. When you're feeling forsaken and forgotten, a, a nice little daily devotional is not going to probably get you through that, okay? And nor maybe even a preaching like what I'm doing here. You're going to have to roll up your sleeves and dive into God's word. And you need to be, begin to think out the implications of what you're reading and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to make those truths alive to your heart. That's why I pray, that's why I prayed at the beginning, that the truths of who you are, God, may they become real to our hearts. And that happens, as we've taught here, you know, how do you study the Bible? Observation, what does it say? What's the next one after observation? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application. How does this apply to my life? You got to take a text like this and begin to work it deep into your heart. Meditate on it. Reflect on it. What is he saying? What does it mean he won't forgive me? How does that, how do I see that in a mom that's nursing a child? How are you showing this to me, God? What does that mean to me? You got to begin to work it down deep into your heart and you got to cry out to God and say, God, make it alive in my heart. Fill me with that. You see, we don't feel our way into our beliefs. We believe our way into our feelings. So when our feelings have gone south, the only way we can get them back in alignment, we've got to take them back to God's word. We've got to think it out. We've got to spend time with him. And, and that's why small groups are so critical, that we're sitting across from people and they're, they're talking to us God's word. They're asking us questions. We're, we're doing what is known as inductive studies as opposed to deductive studies. Deductive studies are more kind of reading a nice devotional. What I'm doing in here is deductive. When you begin to ask questions about the text and begin to work it down deep into your heart, that's inductive. You begin to ask yourself questions. What does that mean? If I actually believe that, what difference would that make in my life? Oh my goodness, I'm not even living close to that. Lord, help me. Help me to understand this more clearly. Please, Lord. This is a powerful truth that it just kind of, it doesn't mean anything to me right now, but I want it to mean something to me. You begin to get a hold of it. You begin to pray to God. You pour your heart out to God. You begin to work through that as we've seen there in the Psalms. And God will begin to work that truth down deep into your heart and bring the healing that he wants to do and the life change that you desperately need. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we live by faith and not by what? By sight, by feeling. Hebrews 11:1, 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So let's do that. Let's just take a moment here. Let's kind of work through a little bit of this. So what... What God is saying is that my love for you is like a nursing mom who provides, what does a nursing mom do? Provides physical love of vital nutrients for the health and the healing of her child. Think about that just for a moment. So it's, it's based on kind of really a supply and demand. The higher the demand, the more the supply. Any mom that's nursed a baby knows that as the, as the baby's asking for more milk, the mom supplies more. And that's how our relationship with God is, supply and demand. The higher the demand, the more the supply he gives. It says in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, I'm glad Nancy nursed all three of our kids because at nighttime when the kids were crying out, I could, I could look over at her and said, I don't have anything they need. And all the men out there said, amen to that. And I rolled back over and she went and took care of them. I did have a father last night say that uh, his wife required him to go get the baby and bring the baby to her. I go, oh, my, my wife didn't do that. But uh, I don't have what they need. You have what they need. And not only, so, so my love for you is like a nursing mom who provides physical love, but also emotional love. I, I loved watching moms 
coddle and console and comfort and adore their children. So there's something about that. Moms are really kind of experts in that category. My wife was really good at that. And one of the things that I enjoy doing here at Desert Breeze is that um, with each service, I have a chance to walk through our uh, elementary age and our nursery age kids and go through there and see the people. And, and our, our group over there, those that serve are really good at coddling your kids and loving on your kids because some kids are, are dropped off screaming their lungs out, okay? And I know they have to get used to that environment, but I'm telling you, they do a great job over there coddling them, loving on them. It's just comforting them. And, and that's what moms do. That's what he's saying here. First um, John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. I, when I think of that word lavished, I think, of, I think of coddling and consoling and comforting and adoring. That's what God wants to do to us and in our lives. You ever get a sense of that on your heart? He loves you. He adores you. He can comfort you. And then there's the unconditional love. You know, when you think of this, my love for you is like a nursing mom who provides physical love, emotional love, and then unconditional love, which is this unconditional love with an infant. It's it's all give from mom and all take from the child, 24-7. I mean, moms, what do you get from your infant? Dirty diapers and 3 a.m. feedings, that's what you get. I mean, it's hard. I'll never forget this, that uh, maybe you had this experience. A couple times we had one of these, uh, I hate to be too gross here, but and I won't get too graphic, but we had one of those uh, diaper explosions happen. And it was ugly, and there was a lot all over the child. And and it it only happened a couple times, but uh, I remember my wife looking over at me, and she had that look on her face. We kind of, she said, you know, it'd be much easier to make a new one than to clean this one up. (laughs) I mean, it was a total mess. It was a mess. But you know what? There's that unconditional love. You just, you clean up that mess because you love them. And I see that in our relationship with God, Romans 8, 35 through 39. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. All of your mess, I'm telling you, all of your mess, that can never separate you from, from his love. Now, if you knew a love this good from a person this great, if this love was an abiding reality to your heart moment by moment experientially, I mean, what kind of person would you be? A lot different than what you are now. I mean, at the least, there would be a fountain of love and joy and peace in your life that no circumstance and no amount of suffering could stop. Not at all. This is a powerful love. This is a practical love. This is an amazing love. Tell, I'm telling you, when you understand, you live in the reality of his love for you, it'll change you. So God's compassionate answer. But then we've got God's comforting cure. Look at verse 16. It, it, it comes off a little strange. It says, behold, think about this. Reflect on this. Let's just go deep in your heart. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Here's your next fill in the blank. What convinces you that someone really loves you is not just talk, but action. So 1 John 3.18 says, let us not love in words, but also in our actions. Now, words are really important, but in the end, you need to see action. Forsaken means you're not doing anything for me. I don't see any action. 
Now, most frustrating thing about parenting is that as the child gets older, they seem to be oblivious to all that the parent has done. There seems to be an attitude of entitlement. And this attitude of entitlement with the children or with your child, and they don't understand how the parents have oriented their whole life around their child. Remember when we had our first child, and I didn't realize that it was going to disrupt our life as much as it did. But you have that first child, you go, oh my goodness, our whole lifestyle just changed overnight. We just can't leave this child at home by themselves and just take off for a couple of weeks and come back and hope everything's okay. No, it's like 24-7. And then we added another one to that. And then we had a third one. We had three kids in three years. And uh, two were in diapers. I'll, I'll never forget this. So we're packing up the kids to go to church. It's a hot summer day. Nancy and I are breaking out into a sweat, just trying to get the kids buckled in the back seat of the car and a couple of their, you know, their diaper bags and all of this stuff. And finally get in the car, we're heading to church. And I look over to Nancy and I said, man, I'll be glad when things get back to normal. And she looked at me like, dude, this is normal. When you run off for your little 24-hour shift on the fire department, I'm doing this by myself. I'm going shopping with all three of these kids. I'm even taking them to church. And I just sunk down on the seat just like, okay, I got it. That, that is normal. That was normal. And I was living in some other world like, we'll get through this eventually. What was interesting about that is those, those early days were hard. And then they kind of leveled off a little bit. And then you got into the teenage years and it was out of control then. I mean, it was just like, oh, my goodness. So you got something to look forward to there, parents with small kids. And so it's, it's tough. And the kids have no idea. They have no idea how much you sacrifice for them. I was teaching on solitude not too long ago, about a month ago, the importance of solitude. And I had a DB mom who has a house full of kids came up to me and said, uh, what's solitude? I go, I know, I got it. You're not going to have any solitude for at least 20 years, okay? Until all those kids are grown and gone. So there are moments, there are moments when you cross the will of your child and you don't give the child what they want, and the child screams out bloody murder. Child says, you don't love me! And they have no idea how much you've already loved them and taken care of them. In other words, they're saying, I feel forsaken, I feel forgotten. And here's what you wanna say. I wouldn't suggest that you say this, okay? This, I'm just thinking, that this is what I'm thinking. This is what you want to say. You little midget demon. <laughs> the sacrifices I have made for you are invisible to you. And the most crucial deeds of love that I have done for you are not these things that you are asking for right now. In fact, these things you're asking for right now that you're not getting your way are pretty trivial, trivial compared to what I have already done for you. Do you understand that? No, they don't, and neither do we when it comes to our relationship with God. We feel forsaken and forgotten, and oftentimes those are such trivial things in our life when God's saying, don't you understand how much I've done for you and how much I love you? That's what this text is saying here. That's what verse 16 is. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. See, in ancient times, the name of a master might be tattooed on a servant, but never would the name of the servant be tattooed 
on the master. I mean, that would mean that a master was totally devoted to the servant. This is not another beautiful metaphor, by the way. This second part, this verse, verse 16, this is a horrible metaphor because it doesn't say tattooed. It says engraved, and the word engraved in Hebrew means with a hammer and a chisel. Why would anyone let someone take a hammer and drive a spike into the palm of their hands? This is powerful. 700 years before the crucifixion, this was prophesied. Centuries later, there was a man named Thomas. He was filled with doubts. The disciples kept saying, no, he's resurrected from the grave. I'm not getting it. I don't believe it. I feel forsaken. I feel forgotten. Jesus shows up, comes over to Thomas and says, hey, put your, put your fingers in these wounds. Put your hand on my side. And what's Thomas say? My Lord and my God. And he went on, church history says, and gave his life for Jesus. Why is this God's comforting cure? His final argument and answer, here it is on your notes. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. Because Jesus prayed on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. We can cry with confidence, Abba, Father, Daddy. Romans 8, 15. If you're here this morning, you've never made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, this would be a good time. We're just about to wrap it up. We're going to take communion here in just a few moments. But here's how you do it. You acknowledge the fact that your sin separates you from God. You believe that Christ died on the cross for all of your sins, in your place for all your sins. You confess him as Lord and Savior. Jesus was forsaken for you to wipe out all of your sins so that you could have access into the throne room of God and call him Abba, Father, and never, ever be abandoned by God. He'll never, ever forsake you because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Here's your last fill in the blank. It is the final argument and answer that will ultimately heal all sin and suffering. We talked about Romans 8, 31 and 32. Gospel, the gospel logic of that, if God is for us, who can be against us? It says if he didn't spare his own son and taking care of our, our worst problem of being eternally separated from him, he's not gonna spare anything else in taking care of us. If he didn't spare Jesus, with our worst problems, they're going to spare Jesus or, or anything else in taking care of any of our other problems. And even if you're this morning in the worst case scenario, as David says in Psalm 27, 10, listen to what it says. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The Lord will always take you in through Jesus Christ, and he will never, ever forsake you. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, we are filled with unspeakable and glorious joy that on the cross, Jesus experienced hell for us, total abandonment from God. The Father turned his face away from his Son so that the Father would never have to turn his face away from us. By his death, by Jesus' death, he reconciled us to you, Father, so that we can know we will never, that you will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. We celebrate that now in communion in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.